We are in a series that's called The Great Awakening. It is my opinion that we're in need of a fresh awakening in our world. And the great news is Jesus, I believe, is in a very good mood and he would like to pour out an awakening. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36, says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ. I do announce to you right now that the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords is Jesus. The one that's got all the power is Jesus. The one with all the authority is Jesus. The one that's got the ability to redeem your life is Jesus. The one that's got the wherewithal to put back together a culture, a family, a marriage, anything, it's Jesus. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That means they were convicted. They were mm, troubled, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's really the best response when you've heard the gospel. How do I respond to the message of Jesus? And Peter said to them, and this is the verse today, and there's one word I'm going to pick out of this verse. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We've had multiple people this weekend get baptized. I wish you could have been at UF campus last week out in the outside the university auditorium as people are being baptized in the name of Jesus, giving their lives to him and turning to him and tears flowing down. But the verse that I want to focus on today is this verse 38 where it says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. I want to talk about what is repentance today. Let's pray. God help. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at someone and say, let's do it. So we're getting through the Winter Olympic Games, and I'm not sure if anyone was watching them in here or not, uh, but the Olympics are an interesting phenomenon because, of course, we call them the Olympic Games. They, they originated with the Greeks. And I was reading something recently describing the nature of the Olympic Games and how for the Greeks, they took the Olympic Games very seriously. Now, if you are, if you've lived in Gainesville for any period of time, you get a little bit of the idea because if you live here in Gainesville, you take sports very seriously. You take uh, football seriously. You take basketball seriously. You, you, you were happy yesterday as Georgia went down and the good guys won. You were like, okay, that's a good thing. But to the average American, when we hear something like the word games attached to the word the Olympics, we hear Olympic games and we really don't quite get it exactly because for us a game is, it, it's a game. It's, it's something you have fun with. It's something you get over. But this article was describing how for the Greeks, the Olympics were way more than games. And even though the best translation into English is the word games, the word games doesn't accurately describe what the Olympics were for the Greeks because it was much, much more. It was like when someone says volleyball is life. You know, it's like when someone says that my, my family, I, I worship the ground that my children walk on. When someone says something like that, the games were so much more. And the, and the article ended like this. There's actually a need because there are ancient words 
that when we translate them into current language, they don't quite communicate what the ancient words were, and yet there are some ancient words that we are in need of recovering because they're just too vital. Now, that's absolutely the case in the Bible. There are words that we rarely use in in current English, words like salvation or words like redemption, and, and we don't quite know what they are. I would argue among those words, perhaps... If there's any word I can think of in the English language or in the English Bible that is not accurately depicted when someone hears it, it is this word that we're going to pick apart today, which is the word repentance. I don't want to overstate the case, but I'm going to submit to you right now that there is perhaps, other than the name of Jesus, there's probably no word that could do more good in our lives than this word repentance. If you knew the great news, if, if only you realized what this is, there are massive promises to those that embrace this truth. For example, in 1 John 1, 9, the scripture says, if we confess our sins to God, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is describing repentance that's taking place, and it says that when someone repents, that when they confess their sins, there's... There's a forgiveness and a cleansing. There's maybe some of you that are even watching right now that you feel dirty or shameful. And I've got amazing news for you, which is when you embrace repentance, something pops in a soul that that if you've ever had that feeling of just being filthy and then you got clean. You ever just taken an amazing shower and you came out and you felt like a million bucks? You ever smelled someone and you're like, I really wish you would feel like a million bucks? In 2 Chronicles 7.14, many of you know this is like the great revival passage of the Old Testament. If my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'm going to hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins and I will heal their land. There's this idea that when there is the turning that takes place, when this repentance takes place, there is a, a healing of the land. There is a hearing from heaven. Or to use the words of Jesus in the great prayer that we pray, his kingdom comes on the earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's not just prayer. People say, well, when we pray, something happens. It's true that when we pray, things happen. But what I'm telling you is when we pray and there is a turning that takes place, there is a way in which heaven comes down. There is a way in which we see heaven manifest on the earth just like it is in heaven. So there's this this promise in Scripture of, of what repentance is. But there's also massive warnings associated when we don't get it. For example, Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, he said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When we do not repent, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very forthright, I'm going to be very candid with you. Listen, I'm a preacher. I hang out in preacher spaces. I'm very familiar with the fact that like one of the least popular words in American preaching around right now is the word repentance. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to say it on a very front end, Every single human listening to me now is in need of repentance. I'm going to say it again. Repent. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to pull a punch on this. I don't want to kind of skirt around and be like, mm, don't mention sin. Don't mention evil. Don't. Friends, you cannot confront injustice if you will not acknowledge sin. And you cannot deal with the realities of our life unless we agree. I mean, everyone says, oh, I love Jesus. Do we? Because he's the one that said, if you don't repent, It's going to be bad, (laughs) but if you will, it's going to be good. 
So what is repentance? First, I'm going to start with what it's not. What repentance is not, repentance is not saying, if my wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl offends you, I'm sorry. Repentance is not saying, if, if I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. Repentance is not apologizing. Repentance is not feeling really bad. Repentance is not trying to not do it again. Repentance is not even not doing it again. Sometimes people think because I've ceased to do something that I repented, and yet that might be part of repentance, but that's not the entirety of repentance. There is such a thing as what's called worldly sorrow. Judas had worldly sorrow when he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He had worldly sorrow, but worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to regret. When you've got worldly sorrow, you feel worse about yourself, like Judas ends up killing himself. Worldly sorrow is not repentance. It's worldly. It's what the Puritans called legal repentance. It's religious repentance that doesn't really do anything. This year, my, sort of my case study this year, especially during Black History Month, has been James Baldwin. And just really been sort of fascinated by this civil rights activist, leader, poet, uh, the, the, the poet of the civil rights movement, and just fascinated by his, his angst, his anger, his rage, his hope, his love for America, his anger with America, his, his problems with the world as it is. He lived in other parts of the world and went to all sorts of different places, but I've been so, I don't know, uh, encouraged by James Baldwin because when I read him, there is so, now, of course, some of you may know this. He was actually a Pentecostal preacher from age like 12 to 16, all right? What he saw among many Christians, though, especially in the lack of addressing of injustices in the world that we lived in, was a snare in his soul that he could not escape the hypocrisy of a people that claimed to believe in a God of justice and did not represent him on the earth. And when you read him speak, there's so much biblical language there's a book about him called Begin Again. It kind of piggybacks on the term to be born again. There's this phrase that he would use of being born again. He would talk about getting back to your first love, going back to your first works. He was calling for a new Jerusalem. But the biggest of all the words that he would throw down was he would throw down this word that he believed that America needed to hear, which was America is in need, and he would say, of repentance. Now, church... It bothers me because when I see someone like James Baldwin that I'm like, oh my, mm, there's this man that had so much passion and activism and, and yet, I mean, I, he certainly was not living a lifestyle of following the way of Jesus. If you, and so again, please do not think me using him right now. I'm, I'm giving a thumbs up on all of his lifestyle. I'm not. What I'm saying is something is wrong to me when people that are not even following Jesus use the word repentance better than Christians are. What he said was when he would describe what was going on in the world around, he, would, he, would, he was demanding a, what he called the full recognition of sin. That's part of repentance. He demanded, he was frustrated by the empty words of people that said they're sorry but did not change. That's repentance talk. He, he, would, he would talk about, he, he would ask the question, he says, does our country have the stamina to do the work of confronting our darkness? That's repentance talk. What he wanted, but what he did not see in the culture that he was living in, and frankly, it breaks my heart 
Because even when he met Christians, he saw people that could say the words, but they did not show it with their feet that they had turned to the living God. Church, I, I need, if there's anyone on the planet that needs to be experts at repentance, it's got to be us. It's got to be us. The people of God, it's us. So what is repentance not? It's, it's not just, it's not words. It's not simply saying, can we move on? Because you often can't move on until you've confronted your past. That's what repentance taught us. When you've confronted your past, oh, the floodgates open, and there's great news because there's a future for you. But until you will be honest. I was watching that movie, I think it's called Draft Day, and there's a, there's, it's, it's about a coach, that, a general manager that's drafting this guy, and, the, and the, the guy that was sort of projected to be number one, he ends up not drafting him because they had sort of done a test with it, someone had done a test with this guy, and he was a liar, and he wouldn't, and because he would not fess up to what the reality was, Kevin Costner, who's playing this, this is before he was a cowboy, that he was telling him, no, I, you know, th this is not the guy for us. He won't acknowledge his past. You cannot change your future when you will not acknowledge your past. We've, we've been saying that this awakening, this revival, there, there's, a, there's a process that, that, that takes place. It goes like this. When there's trouble, it kind of put that little, that little paradigm of awakening up here. It starts with there's trouble. And when there's trouble, God's people begin to pray. When God's people begin to pray, when enough prayer has taken place, there's this atmosphere of awe or reverence for God. And that leads to repentance. If you're right with God, you, are, you fear the Lord. You've got awe and, repent, and, and reverence for God. But if you're not, you, you repent. And what happens from repentance, when enough repentance happens, then there's an awakening. That's where we find cultures like the Hebrides, cultures like um, the Wales. There's this, this reality of these Indonesia, these places where a lot of people turned to God. And when they did, there was an awakening. And then you would get transformation. And of course, what we've been describing in this series is that the United States of America or Ukraine or you name the place or Europe or wherever in the world, we want transformation. But a lot of times we want transformation by a politician. And yet what we know from scripture and what we know from history, politicians are great, but the way that you're going to get a transformation is when God's people pray and then that brings God's presence and then there's repentance, then there is a revival and then there's transformation. We, we've got to stop being surprised when we don't see the fruit without planting the seeds and that's what we're going for here. So if we're, what, I, what I want to let you know right now is that repentance is the trigger of the kingdom of God coming on the earth. It is the trigger. So, so, so what, do we, what is it exactly? Well, the Greek word for repentance, what is repentance? The Greek word for repentance is, is metanoia. It's, it's a word that means, uh, and that's that word, that verse, Acts 2.38, it means to, to have another mind about something. It's, it's a word referring to the mind, to, to, to reconsider, to get a new mind, to rethink to make a shift in your, it's a paradigm shift. That's what repentance is. You gotta think of this in a whole new way. It's, it's, culture, it's culture, it's a word of culture. Martin Luther would say when he nails the thesis, when, he, when he's going in, in the Protestant Reformation is based on this idea that all of life should be repentance. Just so we're clear here, if you follow Jesus, you've entered into a culture of repentance. We are people that, it's not just something you did once, you're like, man, I did that back in 1947. No, ideally, the mature people, they repent and repent and repent and repent and repent and repent and repent. 
The best repenters in the universe should be us. Parents, if you want your kids to repent, guess what they need to see you do? Show them how. We teach our kids to drive, and we teach our kids to eat, and we teach our kids to walk, and we got to teach our kids to repent. And you don't do it just by being a TV preacher saying, repenta, for the kingdom of God has come up. No, you, you, you show people how. Some things are caught as much as taught, and this is one of those. The Greek word it means to have another mind. The Hebrew word is the word teshuva. It's, it's teshuva. It means, it means to turn. It's, it's a turning. So we get this idea in the Old Testament, which is the language of Hebrew, of turning. There's, there's a shifting. It's, it's like I was a youth pastor for a number of years. I now consider myself a youth pastor for grown-ups, just so you guys know what I now consider myself. The, what, what's fortunate for you that was unfortunate for our teenagers was that I would drive places. And I'm a very good driver. I'm a very good driver. But I'm not great with directions unless I have a GPS. I don't know if anyone else is like that. And at my worst, I don't like to stop for directions because I'll say, I got this, I got this. And on multiple occasions, I was driving our youth, and the parents were waiting in the church for me to bring them back. And we were supposed to be back in Gainesville, coming from Jacksonville. But when all the signs are saying that you're somewhere in Georgia, that's when you realize. <laughs> and the kids, I'm waiting for the kids to fall asleep so no one asks me a question. But at some point, I actually have to make what is called a UE. Do you know what a UE is? Repentance is a turning. It's, it's a, it, it requires the acknowledgement of, I might not be where I should be. And sometimes we justify, yeah, Valdosta's not bad. <laughs> There's sometimes, no, no, this, this isn't so bad. You know, what, what I'm doing, this is, not, this is not nearly as bad as someone that's in Alaska right now. Because sometimes we do the what about us and we compare ourselves to someone else. That is not the same as repenting. Repenting is when you have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, which is there's a change of mind and then there's a, the, a changing of that direction where you make that U-turn. But I could give you all the, I don't know, depictions, but I decided just to kind of today just tell you the story that Jesus told when he described repentance. It's in Luke chapter 15. I'm using this as the illustration and in Luke chapter 15, we have the parable of the lost sheep. And this is the whole sermon in a nutshell today. It's simply this. We are sheep. God is a shepherd. And repentance is when a wandering sheep cooperates with the rescue of the shepherd. I'm going to say it again. We are sheep. Someone make a sheep sound. He's a shepherd. And repentance is when a wandering sheep cooperates with the rescue of the good shepherd. So verse one, it says, now tax collectors and sinners, they were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Now this matters because it's, you don't get it exactly in English, but in the Greek tense here, you get the idea that it's not just a few people, it's, it's, it's all the tax collectors and sinners. There's, there's a groups of them. There are tons of these tax collectors and sinners. And apparently the idea is it's really obvious by how they dress, by how they talk. These are sinful dregs of society. And then it says that they were coming to him and it, 
It says they were all drawing near to him, and, it's, and, and the tense of this verb is they were coming and coming and coming and coming. It means they came constantly. They didn't just come occasionally. They were constantly coming. In other words, everywhere Jesus went, he was like light to flies. They seemed to flock to him. And then verse 2 gives the tension of the story that's about to be told because it says, And the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled and they said, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now the setting of this parable that we're about to get of the good shepherd and the lost sheep, it's crucial because he's not speaking it to sinners, he's speaking it to Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were a broad group of people. The Pharisees were this group of people that in the 21st century they really get a bad rap. We're like we kind of equate the word Phariseeism with hypocrisy. But in the first century, you need to understand that, that really Pharisees were a mixed bag. There were really good Pharisees. There were some bad Pharisees. And, and, and there's, in, in a lot of ways, the Pharisees were the ones that had really maintained a fidelity and faithfulness to the law of God. The, the Phariseeism had really started as a move of God that protected God's people from not believing in God's word. And I need you to know, I believe in the word of God. Like, we believe in the validity and the authority of the word of God. Right now, it's under, it, I do believe God's word is under attack. The Pharisees would agree with that, and they were standing for God's word. But there was a group of people that were, lived in the, in the Qumran communities. If you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were certain Jews that were very, very strict. They lived in the Qumran communities. We'd call them Essenes and others. They would live in caves. They'd live in these communities. And they were so concerned about the worldliness and the dregs of the culture that they decided to be separatists. So they lived separately from all the other people. That's where they live. So they, they didn't want to defile themselves by getting near all the dirty people. Well, the Pharisees were a broad group that really didn't have any official membership, but they had certain things that they were committed to, like Sabbath keeping, the law of God, prayers, fasting, things like that. But although they lived in the pop, general population, they had a way of making clear that they were different than other people. They weren't like the, the Qumran communities that said, we need to go live in caves. They said, we'll live in cities with everybody else, but there's something we will do to make sure everyone knows that we're separate, and that separation was table fellowship. You don't sit down to eat with sinful people. You don't welcome sinners. You make it really clear. You are sleeping with someone you shouldn't. You are living like you should. You are a drunk. You are a gambler. You've got a filthy mouth. You, all of you guys... I'll see you in the market, but I'll never see you at dinner because I'm going to stay separate from you, which is why when this one rabbi rises up, whose name was Yeshua, Jesus, and he talked in a way that no one else talked. And he taught in a way that no one else taught. And he spoke as if he had authority. And women that had issues of blood for 12 years and they were dying and they were broke, they... They could barely touch the hem of his garment and they'd get better. And widows who lost their sons, their funerals got canceled when he rose their sons from the dead. And blind people were seeing and deaf people were hearing and he would speak like no one had ever spoken. And I know what it's like because when I met Jesus at the University of Florida and I started reading the Bible and I started reading the red words first, and I never read anything like this. And I never heard anything like the words of Jesus. And I'm like, how are you still speaking 2,000 years later? And someone, like, how do, you, how do you that pop to the words that you say? Thousands of years later, like, who are you? What is this? 
And sinners, they, they sensed something about him, and they ran to him. Now, the irony is, and where I'm going with this, is that we're about to find out Jesus did not hold back on dropping the word repent. Like he would tell them, unless you repent, you're going to die. You're going to go to hell. You're going to perish. And the sinners are like, we're going to keep coming to you. I love that Jesus did not pull any punches. And sinners ran to him. Just so we're clear, Christians, we don't need to compromise the gospel if we want to go reach this world. Tell them the truth. If there's something hanging in their nose, tell them. Or else you're not a friend. Don't tell me you're a good friend when your friend is about to go on a date to ask a girl, girl out and something's hanging out of his nose. Like, how do I look? You're like, good. You're not a friend. Wait, you're friends with somebody and, and they're far from God and you're going to do nothing to help them to meet you? Don't tell me that you're a friend. Now, I'm not saying you're judgmental. I'm not saying you're condemning. What I'm saying is be a friend. Now, you, obviously, you talk to different people in different ways, but we, when we come to verse 3 now, when it says, so Jesus told them, that's he told the Pharisees, this parable. By the way, he's about to tell the parable of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son, a.k.a. the prodigal son. I'm not going to go through all three, but I need you to know that commentators acknowledge this is actually one parable in three parts. It's not three different parables. It's one parable, three parts, same point being made. So he told them this parable, verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country, goes after the one that's lost until he finds it, and when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. We are sheep. He is a shepherd. Repentance happens when we cooperate with the rescue of the shepherd. As many of you know, I'm a shepherd. I have eight little sheep. I have eight children. My wife is very fruitful. We have eight kids, which has made going places quite a challenge for someone like me who is not a detail person often. We went to Bush Gardens in Tampa one time, and I get distracted by all the things. There's just stuff everywhere. There's roller coasters and all this stuff, and and of course, with as many kids as I have, sometimes you, you know, the way that you keep up with your kids is sometimes you don't go by names, you go by numbers. <laughs> thing one, thing two, th or not thing, but you know what I'm saying, pats one, pats two, pats three, pats four. And at the end, after, sort of toward the end of a long day of roller coasters and all that, I, the shepherd, I started counting my sheep, one, two, and I got to seven. And one of my sheep was missing. And you don't want a sheep missing at Bush Gardens. And immediately I get into panic mode and, and I start looking. I start shouting for the, the name of, of my little sheep. And I'm looking around and man, I, this little daddy's heart broke when got myself over to the corner of the scorpion and the funnel cakes. And I saw this little sheep, this little pat sheep with a little tear coming down her her cheek, lost. She could not find herself. She had to be found. The picture the Bible gives us from God's perspective when we fall into sin is that we're lost. There's some of you that are listening to me now and you're, you're living in sin perhaps. And I'm just telling you, you're lost, man. You don't know what you're doing. 
You may not feel lost. You rarely feel, you don't really realize you're lost the minute you're getting lost. No one, no one realizes, oh, I missed my exit. Initially, it's when you hit Valdosta, you're like, whoa. <laughs> Prodigal son parable is going to tell you, at some point, you finally come to your senses. It often takes a while to come to your senses because we're sheep. Well, that's the picture Jesus gives. He says, there's a man, he's got 100 sheep. Imagine it's the end of a long day, and, and he, I mean, he can't just look at the, the group and recognize, oh, look at, you know, my, my, you know, my you know, white and brown spotted sheep. No, he's, he's he kept one, two, three, 97, 98, 99. Wait, wait, what? He, then you got to go count them. Okay, wait, wait, all the, come on, sheep. One, two, three, four, 80, 90, 98, 99. I'm missing a sheep. See, we are sheep. He is a shepherd, and repentance is when a wandering sheep cooperates with the rescue of the shepherd. Now, this, this parable that Jesus is giving is piggybacking on the most prominent image of early Christianity. The, the number one artistic image of the early Christian movement was actually the good shepherd. I'm not sure if you know that, but the number one image, the image that got most often used of Jesus in the early church was that of a shepherd and a staff and a sheep on his shoulder. Now, this is piggybacking on a, on a psalm that most people know. And if you know it, say it with me. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And say this, he restores my soul. In Spanish, Jehová es mi pastor. Nada me faltará. There's this idea. And then it says, en lugares de delicados pastos me hará descansar. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He restores my soul. Now, I, I need to help you with this because when, when I read he restores my soul, and I get a word like descansar, there's this idea of like he leads me in, in lugares de descanso. There's this, these places of, of rest. I think of being like burned out from too much social media and I need a break. I think about being burned out from too much work and I need a good movie. Or I think about being burned out and I need to go play putt-putt golf. With. But the word, he restores my soul, it's a Hebrew word that refers to God taking me back from the wrong path to the right path. It's this idea that I am a sheep and God is a shepherd and I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And when I get on the wrong path, the Lord is my shepherd. I've got everything I need. He makes me lie down. But when I wander, he comes. And it's not just that when he restores my soul, it's not that he's making me feel recharged again. He's taking me from the wrong path and putting me on the right path. So when I'm reading about revivals, for example, I was, I was reading about the revival in the Hebrides. And when they began to pray, there was this great prayer. They began to pray. There was a sense of the holiness of God. And church, I need you to know, I'm praying this happens in Gainesville. I'm praying this happens on UF campus. I'm praying this happens on Santa Fe campus. I'm praying this happens down in Tampa. I'm praying that this happens across the state of Florida. I'm praying that we're going to see something like this. The public awareness, the deep consciousness, that they would say, of God's holiness had come. And there were unbelievers and believers alike that were, they were feeling the weight. They felt this. There was an example of the atmosphere changed. The messenger showed up in a church meeting like this, and they went to the preacher, and they said, come with me. There's a crowd of people outside the police station. They are weeping in awful distress. We don't know what's wrong with them. They are calling for someone to come and to pray for them. 
While making his way out of the police station, the preacher saw scenes that he never thought was possible. Under the starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere by the roadside, outside of the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying out for God to have mercy upon them. Nearly 600 people who had been making their way to the church were suddenly, by the Spirit of God, stopped with great conviction, like Paul on the, way to, on the road to Damascus, kneeling down in front of the police station, asking God for mercy. That was repentance. In New York City in 1857, 1858, there was a, a revival of business people that were praying at the noontime hour, and there was a great spiritual epidemic that had taken place, but, but there had erupted this, this reality where people were praying, and, and they tell us that there was this spreading among the nation that sinners standing at the bars, gamblers at their gaming tables, people gathered in churches, even passengers and, and sailors on ships that were approaching the New York Harbor found themselves suddenly aware of the presence of God. And the consciousness of God had smitten them in a way that they saw their sin and they knew they needed God's mercy. They knew they needed to be found. See, we are sheep in need of being found. And God is a shepherd who is an expert at finding. And that's why it says in verse 5, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders. There's an old hymn called The King of Love My Shepherd Is, Whose Goodness Faileth Never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. And I relate to this line. Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me and on his shoulder gently, gently laid and home rejoicing brought me. You can't find yourself. Only God can find you. He restores my soul. In verse 6 it says, And when he came home with his sheep, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Rejoice with me. Now, anyone that would have heard this in the first century, everyone say the word friends. Jesus spoke Hebrew, which means he would have spoken, the word in Hebrew for friend would be, it's havarim or shavarim. There's, it's, this, it's a word that sometimes gets translated associate, but it's the word friend, this havarim, shavarim. There's this idea of a friend. Now, anyone that would have heard this would have been familiar. There was a group of Pharisees, so you could be a Pharisee in general, but there was one specific group of Pharisees. They called themselves the havarim. The havarim were something like, they were like the enforcers of the law. They were like, every country right now has like special forces. A lot of us are really hoping that Ukraine has these special forces. We know the president's taking up ammunition, right? But we're like, hey, we hope they've got the special forces. Every security detail in a country usually has that. The Havarim were like the special forces among the Pharisees because they considered themselves the friends of the Torah. They were the friends of the law. They were the, friend, the special protectors of God. We want to make sure no one is going to violate what God's law said. We are the friends of the law, which is why when Jesus came, there was a special negative accusation that was made against Jesus because of Jesus, they said, this man welcomed sinners he is the friend of sinners. I know you and me hear something like friend of sinners. That if you're like me, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that you are my friend. Anyone else feel like that? I'm like, 
I mean, to me, it's like the biggest compliment in the world. Jesus, you are the friend. If I need anyone listening to me right now to know, if you are a sinner, the best friend you have is Jesus Christ. If you need mercy, you've got it. You need grace, you've got it. You need help, you've got it. You need help, you've got it. His name is Jesus. I need you understanding, though, that 2,000 years ago, this was not a compliment. This was the contextualized put-down of a man that they were saying, no, 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 we are the friends of the law. We associate with the law. We are about the law. You are the friend of sinners. And I tried to figure out why would sinners run to Jesus so much, and I don't see them running to church people so much right now. In Greenhouse, I want us to be the friend of sinners. Now, we're going to see, by the way, this, the final verse of this passage, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who, what does it say? Say it again. Say it louder. Say it strong online right now. Jesus does not mince words. He's not holding back. He doesn't tell sinners, man, we're going to be all right. Just stay right where you're at. No, to the contrary. Jesus will look you in the eyes and say, I love you so much. I'll take you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. You can't tell an abusive person, you know, we're going to be all right. No, you tell them to repent. You don't tell a liar, it's okay. You tell them to repent. You don't tell someone that's done you wrong, it's okay. You tell them to repent. Absolutely. But I want you to see that the sinners, they flocked to Jesus. Why? Because they knew he loved them. There was someone that went to our church for a long time, and, and I found out by accident how much they didn't like me. It was such a bummer. I walked, in, I over, walked in a, into a room where I'm overhearing a conversation about me, I was like, oh, man, that, forgive my language, that sucks. Like, I was really, really upset. I was like, oh, man. And I, and I kind of walked out before they saw me. I was like, oh, like, and I don't know if you've ever had that happen. Like, I thought, not just I thought we were friends. Like, I actually thought they liked, they'd been coming to our church for a while. I'm like, what a bummer to go to a church where you really don't like the pastor. <laughs> I was like, man. And, and I remember sometime later, I, I, we were both at a meeting here in town because they ended up leaving our church, but they were, we were both at this meeting. And when I saw them, I'll be honest, I just walked the other way because nothing in you wants to afflict your presence on someone that's irritated by you. Do you understand what it was like for some sinful man that was full of shame and guilt from years of living apart from God, what it was like when God himself showed up on the earth and Jesus looks him in the eyes and somehow that man knows, you know me better than anyone on earth and I feel like you're not irritated by me. I feel like you're not disgusted by me. I feel like you actually love me. It's, it's really weird. Jesus is going to say, repent, repent, get clean. God is holy. He's going to see all this stuff. And sinners who are living in utter sin, they're like, I want to go with you. 
And their friends would be like, wait, wait, you're not a religious father. I know I'm not religious. I'm with him. They're like, no, bro, you're a sin. Bro, we're going out with the females tonight. Man, we're going to go. We're going to, you know, we're going to get some hookah. We're going to the hookah lounge. You get some, I don't know what they did back then, smoking some opium. You know, we're going to do it. Come on, man. All the teenagers getting together doing their opium, man. Tonight is opium night. And then you got like Billy Bob, 16-year-old teenager. He's like, I don't know, bro. I'm thinking no opium tonight. They're like, what? And like, Jesus. They're like, the rabbis? I know. Like, you're not religious. He's like, I know. And yet I can't cannot help but go with him. And he's still doing that. He still does that. I'm not going to lie to you. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to repent. You must lay down your life. You must deny yourself and take up your cross to go follow him. You must forsake all for Jesus. But when you see Jesus, you're like, it is that it's like asking, would you trade a bicycle for a Tesla? Duh. Give up your sin for Jesus. It is an absolute no brainer when you've seen Jesus. And by the way, this is how you repent. And this is really what I want to call us to today. Why would these people repent? There's two issues in scripture that really make repentance possible. One is this. In Corinthians, it says godly sorrow leads to repentance. There's a part of repentance where you're like, oh man, I feel bad, I'm, I'm not who I should be. So there's a part of repentance that's you feel godly sorrow, but you'll never repent just by feeling bad. But then in Romans it says, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. This is why religious repentance tells people how bad they are, but you don't repent just by getting in touch with how bad your sin is. You get repentant when you see how great your savior is. It's only when you realize there is no one like Jesus. There is nothing like the grace of Jesus. There is no experience like the presence of Jesus. It's when you're like, yes, my sin is bad, but frankly, friends, that will never be enough because that will just lead to regret until you get to the goodness of God. And when you see the goodness of Jesus, it does something in you where you look at your past and you look at your addictions and you look at your proclivities and you look at, I know we got the Pat's family temper and you got the Jones family lust and you got the whatever family, whatever you got, but you, when you see him, would lay down anything to follow him. What is repentance? It's when a wandering sheep cooperates with the rescue of the shepherd. So how do you repent? Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. It says, whoever conceals their sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes their sin will obtain mercy. This is repentance. And this is what needs to happen today. And this is what I'm gonna call us to today. I want you to repent. If you've never repented, I want you to repent and put your faith in Jesus. If you've never been baptized, we'll baptize you today. In the name of the Lord, if you've never repented and turned to him, we, we will do that with you. If you have, if you belong to Jesus, I want you to take a moment before we're done today to ask God, Lord, search me. Is there something in me that, that is not pleasing you? Is, is there something I am to confess, that I am to acknowledge? Don't conceal it. The Bible says when you conceal your sins, you will not prosper. What does repentance look like? What does it look like to cooperate with the rescue of the shepherd? You acknowledge, you confess it, but it's not, it's not just confessing, and you forsake it. There's a turning away. There's a changing that takes place. That is repentance. It does include confessing. If you confess your sins, God's faithful and just to forgive. But oftentimes, I have confessed 
the external parts of my sin. God, I lied, but I did not confess the internal part of my sin and turn away from it. Lord, I lied because I'm looking for the approval of people. When you do thorough repentance, it means I don't just repent for the fruit, the words that are untrue. I repent for the roots. I desire something more than God, namely the approval of people. And when you repent all the way down to the root, you confess and forsake. Let me end it like this. I was reading about a missionary in China who was there when the communist regime took over. And he decided not to leave the country. It reminded me of a lot of the Ukrainians this week that have stayed in their country. He stayed in the country and the communists came and they began to torture him. And for two straight years, they took him and they tortured him and they tortured him and they tortured him. And they tried to convince him that Karl Marx was wiser than Jesus and that General Mao was smarter than Jesus. And as the evidence, they took out a Bible and they showed him these words from today. What man is there that if you've got 100 sheep, he leaves the 99 to go after the one? And they said, you see? Karl Marx would tell you, what a fool, because the collective is infinitely more important than the individual. Your individualism, your Jesus that cares for individuals, it's folly to risk the 99. And they said, see, this is evidence. Your Jesus, your teacher, he's a fool. And he said that was the moment he had his breakthrough. And his eyes lit up. And he looked back at his tormentors. And he said, oh, to the contrary. That parable is not evidence to me of a God who's a fool. That is evidence to me of a God who has proven again and again and again, no matter how far I ever go, he's coming for me. No matter what I ever do, he's gonna be there for me because I'm a sheep and he is a shepherd and my shepherd will never leave me. And church, today I wanna call you to look at the greatness of your shepherd and to worship him.